Hello and welcome back to Cole Hard Facts Podcast. I am your host, Cole Cochran, and today we're going to get into the human infrastructure package the Democrats agreed upon rather than the other infrastructure package. And I think I talked about this last week, but Republicans and Democrats came to agreement on classical infrastructure, and it was only $570 billion in new spending. I know it sounds a lot on paper, but it's over eight years and it's totals overall one and a quarter trillion, which is absolute shit, if you ask me, quite bluntly. And I was very disappointed until they finally reached an agreement for a human infrastructure package. So we'll get right into it. There's a lot to talk about and I really want to cover all these bases. So let's start. So first of all, I want to point out that this is a very broad package in terms of political support, okay? Um, it's still highly partisan. No Republicans are on it. But I think what the most hilarious thing is, is Senator Bernie Sanders was working with President Biden. Now, mind you, Bernie Sanders is an independent from Vermont. He caucuses with the Democrats. And he is one of the most progressive members in the Senate, talking one of the most moderate Democrats that was at first in the Senate for decades and now is a moderate and establishment Democrat in the Oval Office. So you definitely know it's got to be good if these two people are coming together and starting to draft up a proposal. But I, I also don't look at it as like, like absurdity, but I also kind of look at it as symbolic. I mean, we see Senator Bernie Sanders. He represents the progressive wing in the Senate and basically in Congress, and he is this figure that is a force to reckon with, right? He is essentially spearheading this movement that's very reactionary. It's progressing towards change. It wants to combat issues that are in the future. And then it's combating not only Republicans, but moderate Democrats as well, right? I mean, all these moderate Democrats are very, let's look at both sides or very centrist, always willing to compromise. And they've had this constant battle in Biden's first few months of his administration, whether it be coronavirus spending, voting rights legislation, January 6th commission, whether it be infrastructure package, which we'll talk about in a bit, there's always a battle going on and it's essentially split the Democratic Party. So I think it's very symbolic that a pro very progressive member and a very centrist minded president is coming together to uh, start this plan. Although I must say there were some compromises along the way. Okay. Bernie Sanders, like I talked about last week, initially proposed something as high as $6 trillion, right? This talked about climate change, housing, childcare, child tax credits, paid leave, Medicare expansions, you name it. And he was going to raise tax revenue on corporate, uh, on corporations. I think restoring the tax rate to like 30, 32%, something like considerably high considering our conservative circumstances. And Biden and some centrist Democrats, or rather I shouldn't say Biden because he was advocating for a $4.1 trillion plan, but centrist like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, or I believe his name's John Tester from Montana, focused on a $2 trillion plan. So this is a very wide range if you think about it we have one side of the party that's saying two trillion dollars is the limit it 
it can't go any bigger or it'll be too much and we don't want to put ourselves into debt. And then you got the other side of the party, which is asking for something tripled the amount, saying this is essentially the essence of our country. We need to build up our foundation again. We need a nation build. This isn't about deficit or being too concerned with how much money we spend. But thankfully, they finally came to a compromise, and I am so glad, right? They compromised among the Democratic Party from $2 trillion to $6 trillion at $3.5 trillion, which, I mean, is an okay estimate, right? I mean, a true compromise, just looking at the figures, would be like a $4 trillion package, you know, just to split the difference. So I think three and a half trillion leans a little bit more towards the centrist view, but I think the package is rich with detail and context and all these provisions they put in, I would love to detail, right? But it also kind of fits Biden's plan in the end. Anyways, uh, they have three and a half trillion dollars that they're hoping to spend. Then they have the roughly $600 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure package, which is like with... Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, which in fact, if you put the numbers together, is $4.1 trillion. So it's $4.1 trillion in spending, which is really close to Biden's plan. So I think everyone's a winner here. We got centrists that were able to compromise with progressives. Progressives get what they want concerning climate change and housing. And then we got Biden at $4.1 trillion, which is exactly what he wanted. He fulfilled one of his campaign promises finally. And they're hoping to all do this through the reconciliation process. So it requires a simple majority in both houses and Senate. Um, I'll detail that later, though. Like, I'll get into that. I have a whole timeline here before I get ahead of myself. Right? But what the hell is in it? I mean, like, we just, we're going to throw $3.5 trillion. And I know a lot of people out there are saying to themselves, that's a lot of money. $3.5 trillion over so many years. That's just going to be a huge waste of money if I don't know what's in it. Understandable. Let's detail it. So Bernie Sanders came out with a statement, which I actually looked through uh, Forbes, uh, Forbes uh, Breaking News YouTube channel. I found it. And he talked a lot about addressing income inequality by demanding corporations and wealthy people like Jeff Bezos pay their fair share. Talked a lot about child care, paid leave. He talked a lot about helping the working family and then climate change as well. Uh, and then I went to Politico, which I have to give them some credit. It was very nice how they detailed it. And I came up with 11 things that were probably the most important out of all of it, right? First, we got paid family medical leave, right? Because in the United States, surprisingly, if there are any viewers out in Europe, there is no paid family medical leave in the United States. Only... Uh, corporations give you that, right? So corporations normally offer incentives to American workers saying like, well, we'll give you two weeks of family leave or two weeks of uh, paid medical leave. And it seems enticing, but then you will realize that if you go to other countries and industrialized nations, you'd see that most of that is already guaranteed and more. So in America, we don't have that guarantee. And it leaves a lot of people uncertain, especially family leave, like it's always beneficial for paternity, maternal, uh, paternity and maternity leave. I should say, I should slow down for once. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> um, paternity and maternity leave are very beneficial to the development of a child. And 
They are hoping to guarantee at least two weeks in these provisions. I can guarantee you since it is a democratic majority, despite some centrist opposition, there will be at least two weeks of paid family leave and paid medical leave. Um, there might even be more because it's just a whole new territory for our country. We've always talked about this, but it's never been gotten done. Um, so it's a huge territory to cover. And I feel like we can definitely reflect upon other nations that have addressed these concerns. So I think they might go above two weeks, but a lot of these things are vague right now. So that's what I can assume for our viewers, right? Second thing is subsidized childcare. Now, I know Elizabeth Warren must have had her hands on this because I know she talks about it all the time. Subsidized childcare is essentially like anything like that involves a daycare or tending to your child while you're at work. And a lot of people pay hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars a year on childcare, like tending to their child. And it's a huge expense to the family. Now, Democrats are proposing to subsidize this childcare. Now, this is again vague. Like this came out a couple of days ago. It's still new. It still needs to be worked upon. But what we know is that a portion of childcare can be covered, right? Which is also another thing that we can talk about. The third thing, like child tax credits, that's another thing that can benefit the working family. The child tax credits that we had this year, so like that uh, totals $3,000 to $3,600, um, that can be extended on and it could uh, produce some benefits for families. Like picture it this way. Um, we have five children, okay? Like my, fa my family has five children in the house and $3,000 per child, right, is $15,000 in tax credits every year. That's a crazy amount. That's like a huge relief. There are so many families that pay huge amounts of taxes, pay huge amounts of childcare, and then they pay huge amounts um, or rather face consequences from family and medical leave because most of it goes unpaid. So these child tax credits being extended is just another provision that provides more relief for a working family. Um, not to mention in the fourth provision, they've talked about universal, universal pre-K, um, guaranteeing all pre-K for every single student. So um, I think, I don't know if this is gonna be like an extension of school systems, like adding in uh, pre-kindergarten or like paying like institutions to hold pre-kindergarten. Um, I don't know how that will play out, uh, but I do know that universal pre-K means that every child will be guaranteed pre-K regardless of income status. Now, instead of working families, because now we just covered like paid family medical leave, subsidized child care, child tax credits, extensions, and universal pre-K, now it's time to talk about affordable housing. Affordable housing in this case is more about subsidizing. So in America, I can't speak to other countries and their problems, but in America, we have a huge housing crisis. Um, a lot of people can't afford to buy a house or there's a down payment that's way too large. The housing market has exploded multiple times. Like look at the 2008 recession. Um, we have rising apartment costs with very little rise in wages. Wages are stagnating essentially. 
And it's this that's causing a rift and causing a rise in homelessness. Um, it's causing a rise in like a portion of income dedicated to housing. So I think that Democrats in this proposal are trying to focus on subsidizing housing, trying to guarantee uh, a reduction in homelessness. And I think primarily focusing on how can we lower the cost of renting or lowering the cost of mortgages? Like how can we subsidize the housing market? Um, and not to mention affordable housing is also where like we have housing authorities, like essentially like where we have people sheltered, like homeless shelters are a part of this. Um, a lot of things that I think are, um, I would say very interesting to address because there are so many facets into this issue. Like, should we focus on combating the rising cost first? Like, is the rising cost the problem? Or should we combat on trying to get everyone in a shelter first? Like, these are all issues that always arise. Like, if trying to get people and everyone in a shelter, like, will that be too expensive? Or are we trying to focus first on trying to get affordable housing, meaning, like, lowering the cost so people are able to afford it? Like, which one's a bigger problem and which one is better to address? Because there will be some compromises, and I will detail that when we get to the centrist part of this podcast. Besides affordable housing, we've also had some Medicare benefits. So Bernie Sanders has always talked about dental, vision, and hearing benefits, how they're not covered in Medicare. And Medicare has been passed in like the 60s. And Bernie Sanders was mentioning on that Forbes um, uh, Forbes video that like he's quite surprised it was not passed back then, but he's glad that it will be in this new plan. Um, so these Medicare benefits will cover like dental care, vision, and hearing. And these three benefits are not currently covered, which uh, is a, a pretty big financial burden, I would say, uh, to those that require uh, dental care or those that require vision and hearing um, tools such as like glasses, for instance, or hearing aids. Um, so I think that uh, it is something that I look at as, as a benefit, not to mention from the resources and tools you can get with adding these benefits, but also the economic relief that individual would feel. Uh, not to mention, like in the seventh provision, they're reducing the cost of prescription drugs via negotiation. They're giving Medicare essentially the right or rather the ability to lower these prescription drugs through negotiations with hospitals and with pharmacies. And I think that is a wonderful idea because I feel like everyone uh, thinks that insurance, like our expanding insurance benefits will be expensive, but they're only expensive because the entire industry is hyperinflated. Like hospitals and the Medicare industry always inflates the prices. And it, and I think it's just because of that middleman, like the private insurance companies that inflate those prices. So both hospital and insurance companies can milk money out of the average American. And that's where like we have to start understanding that regulating the cost of drugs or regulating the cost of procedures uh, or rather the cost to the consumer um, would start to reduce the cost of insurance. Like it's all about regulation, like the healthcare industry needs to be strongly regulated in order to, um, I would say in order to 
be sustainable in the United States. But honestly, at that point, you might as well just start advocating for universal healthcare because all these regulations would be considered like a government overreach, which I don't think it would be, but most people would. So that's where like you might as well do like a single payer system. So besides that, we also have some amazing things that we can talk about in regards to climate change. I'm probably the most excited about this, about climate change. The federal government has a lot of inaction when it comes to climate change and addressing it. Um, and I felt like, for the most part, the climate approach and combating it has been primarily focused around, um, I would say, focused around states, honestly. Like, I've seen very little federal approach. I know that they sometimes include provisions that will be like grants or subsidies, but I feel like states are kind of separated in this approach. Like, they feel like they're doing their own responses or getting to side too. So like a lot of conservative states don't focus on it. Um, liberal states are trying to combat it. And it's just very hard to set up like that federal standard of like how we are going to approach climate change. So I'm glad that they're able to start doing things fiscally and I hope they can continue this. Um, so what they did um, is provide tax credits for clean energy investments. Uh, they're trying to aim for a clean electric electricity standard, uh, which is aimed at like reducing emissions by 80% in the grid. Because a lot of people don't understand is that we're having a lot of like electric vehicles come up, right? We're having a lot of this shift towards electricity thinking we're, where it's cleaner. And in some respects it is, but electricity is also powered by something else. And it's primarily powered by fossil fuels. So when you're having an electric vehicle, it might have zero emissions, but that electricity was made and that's in pr producing emissions. So that's where they're trying to focus on trying to make this clean electricity standard, trying to aim at reducing emissions in this sector by 80% and hopefully 50% overall by 2030. I think the 50% mark is a bit of a, um, I would say it's a very, I'm trying to think the word, um, a very conservative goal, not like conservative as the party, but just in terms of like the size, like I feel like that 80% or 80% by 2040 would have been a great goal instead uh, to give that extra 10 years to develop it to be 80% because 50% is not as much as we need it. And also remember that the United States is one country. Like I don't think the United States take up as much emissions as uh, China, like China has 28% of global emissions. And I think the United States has like, uh, I can actually look it up. Let me see. I think it's like around 17%. Uh, global share of US emissions. Should have had that ready. Yeah, so like right here, the United States uh, produces four, uh, 5.41 gigatons of carbon emissions in 2018 right china produced 10.06 that's like doubled like we only have half of china's emissions so 14 percent. so anyways 14 percent of global emissions reduce that by half essentially reducing global emissions by seven percent in 10 years just on the united states efforts then we have european nations and whatnot so i think that the idea of this 
reducing emissions by 50% is too conservative. And I think it'd be best if we could re uh, increase it to 80% and then get it done in an additional 10 years. Um, but there's one thing that the United States is doing, which I believe is an emission-based fee, uh, is polluter import fees. Now, the polluter import fee is essentially a fee that they put on U.S. companies, or rather, foreign companies that are coming into the U.S., right? Like, this could be, like, from the European Union, or from China, or from Russia, India, it does not matter which country. And essentially, these will have import fees, and these import fees would um, be taxed on, like, any emissions or any pollution that was made during the process. I don't know if it's manufacturing or not, but I am pretty certain of like travel expenses and whatnot, which is still a major uh, achievement, I would say, like a major progress. And it could lower emissions, not only in the United States, but globally, because soon enough, those trade routes that develop so many emissions would want to start avoiding that tax in the United States, especially since the United States is a great economy. It has great economic influence. And it could also generate revenue, which is definitely going to help when it pays for either this $3.5 trillion plan or it could pay for other climate change provisions that they want to put in. But regardless, it still generates revenue while also deterring away emissions. So it's a great blend, and I am very excited that this is going to be put in. These climate change provisions are um, great steps towards federal government giving action and making a response. Obviously, there is so much more you can do, but these are great first steps, especially since the United States government, I feel like, has been very inactive when it came to, like, coordinating with the state's approach, uh, whether it be, like, in Maine or New Jersey or, or California, because it's just been all fragmented. And you have states like Florida or West Virginia uh, with really high emission rates. Then you have other states like Maine, which are, like, reducing their emission rates in record pace, or like California. So... There's that to talk about. And the last thing that I'm very proud to say um, that was President Biden's like key provision is two years of free community college. And it's just as simple as that. Anyone that wants to go to community college will get two years of it free. Um, so two years would be an associate's, four years would be a bachelor's. So basically a free associate's degree at a community college. And I think that's a great step in terms of education. And I think it's just a matter of like understanding that education is the essence of economic investment and essentially like rebuilding your nation. So I think that they're on the right track. I feel like that any public university or community college should be free for four years rather than two. But I think this is making their way up. And I think as these four years progress in Biden's administration, and given that he does have majorities in both the House and Senate after the midterms, um, this community college and public universities could be expanded and other spending bills. But those are the major provisions in the plan. But after all that, you know what's the context of it. You know what's in it. And you know that it's $3.5 trillion. But $3.5 trillion is still a lot. How are you going to pay for it? Well, I'll tell you. There are some things that uh, they have put in in order to generate more revenue than they are now. And first of all, you have the polluter import fees, which I think they might be using for that. But... You also have the corporate tax rate. Uh, the corporate tax rate is expected to rise from 21% to 28%, which I think is still really low. Like, let me tell you something. So 
in this, I would think it was like the mid seventies, there was a tax rate um, where like first it starts with 20, the first 25,000 is 20%. Next 25,000 25, is like 22%. And then over 50,000 is like 48%. And it just kind of keep progressing. Like that's the corporate tax rate. But then it started changing. Like it was like, um, it started increasing over the time. And then like even in the 80s when the Reagan administration, which by the way is pro-corporate, still had a high tax rate. In fact, I think it was like in 86, the corporate tax rate between like a million and 1.4 million was 51%. And then over 1.4 million that you made, so huge corporations were being taxed at 46%. That's a crazy amount compared to what we have now. And soon enough, when Newt Gringich and all of his conservative Republicans came into overwhelming the House majorities, uh, which is like the Republican Revolution of 1994, um, they started lowering the tax rate ridiculously. Like the first 50,000 was now 15%. They lowered it to 25%, 34%. And I think the highest it ever went was 39%, which is still really low. And then it reached its lowest ever with the 2018 tax cuts with Trump. There was no brackets whatsoever, like regardless of how much you made in revenue. It was just a flat 21%. And I think increasing it to 28% covers the spending plan. But I think over the course of the four years, the Biden administration and Congress should focus on trying to restore it back to its normal numbers, like 35 to 45%. Because if we can get to that, we can secure trillions of dollars and start spending more on spending plans or trying to cover up our deficit. There's just so many things that we could be doing um, with the higher corporate tax rate, but this is a start and it helps pay a portion of it, but it's not only that. Um, so like the capital gains tax rate, um, according to Politico said that it will raise from 23.8% to 43.4%, which is nearly doubling it. Um, that's like, uh, will act like as like a wealth tax, if you will. Um, I think they also are talking about a wealth tax, and I think the capital gains tax rate being increased is certainly a progress, uh, a progressive step. Um, and then you also have like tightening the net on U.S. companies, uh, and for, in regards to foreign earnings, uh, so essentially like trying to tax more foreign or earnings. Um, and then you, and then um, I'm trying to think. I think they had one more thing. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. I think that was it actually. Polluter import fees, a corporate tax rate increase, a capital gains tax rate increase, and tightening the net on US companies' foreign, foreign earnings was kind of like the major part of it. But honestly, I believe that um, Democrats could raise the corporate tax rate a little bit more. I think the ideal uh, first transition would be 32% instead of 28%. Uh, raising it to 32% could raise hundreds of billions of more dollars and would be able to increase these spending plans or at least um, tell centrist Democrats that we can cover some of the deficit with it instead of doing deficit financing. Um, but those are the spending. But now it's like you have to think of it. We have what we want to do. We know how much it's going to be. Everything's coming along well. Uh, moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats are compromising. Um, they are starting to secure majorities, but now we are facing 
a field of uh, uncertainty. It's unclear what the coalition looks like right now. Um, so first, I want to say that there needs to be identical budget resolutions in both House and Senate. Okay, so the House has to pass the same thing that the Senate is. So if there are any amendments in the Senate, which is most likely since they are a lot of moderate Democrats in there, um, they would have to amend that in the House. And a lot of House progressives are very staunchly opposed against any amendments because so far it's already a compromise. So compromising even more means it's a lot of a centrist views being put in more than progressives. So that's where it's getting a bit a rocky in the Democratic Party. And you can start seeing that battle between centrist and moderates renew. Uh, but there are even more hurdles. Like you need every Democrat, every Democrat possible. Like the Senate is split 50-50, as I've said multiple times. And have, as everyone knows, the House, I think, has seven more seats than Republicans, which is extremely slim. Like there are 435 reps overall in the House. That means seven is more so seven more seats means like it's like 50 50 percent and some like it's not a lot and that's what we have to be careful of if democrats want to pass this budget resolution right so currently how i look at it is that like centrists are unsure like joe manchin has said he does not want any more debt added he doesn't think it's necessary and wants to make sure that all the revenue is generated we also have to remember that Joe Manchin favors a lot of corporations. So like increasing the corporate tax rate might be something that's a bit rocky for him. And he's a key vote. You got people like John Tester. He's a Democrat from Montana whose voice is the same concerns. And then you got the other side of the Democratic Party, mind you, not the Republican Party, the Democrats, the progressives are furious if there are any amendments because they have wanted to pass a $6 trillion proposal, right? They wanted to include basically everything on here, but more robust and include more climate provisions. And they already see this as a compromise that, yes, we've already compromised with the moderate Democrats. We agreed on three and a half trillion. Now centrists are a bit unsure, uh, or rather moderates in this case are unsure. And that's where they're getting a bit annoyed because if it doesn't pass as it is, it's more of a compromise towards moderates and caving in towards a few Democrats rather than uh, understanding the concern of the majority, overwhelming majority of Democrats. And then you also got to understand that this bill, 100% of conservative Republicans oppose it. There is no doubt, no Republican will uh, vote for it, which is okay. Um, it's They only require a simple majority because the reconciliation process I talked about earlier. But that means there must be more Democrats They'll be in support of it and to ensure that the entire party is unified. So that's where it's going to be a little bit rocky. But I think overall, I am pretty hopeful about this bill. Um, it'll reach Biden's goal of $4.1 trillion, including the bipartisan deal of $600 billion roughly in extra spending. It's a pretty good compromise between uh, $2 trillion and $6 trillion, like progressives and Democrats. Um, it covers a lot of provisions that Biden and Democrats talked about in their elections, like paid family and medical leave, subsidized child care, child tax credits, universal pre-K, all of it. They talked about this in their campaign and fulfilling it is great. But now it's a matter of making sure this happens before the midterm elections and it happens at a 
opportuni- uh, opportunistic time where it is still in people's minds, still in people's eyes when they vote at the ballot this midterm. And maybe it could increase, uh, increase the majority in the House and Senate for Democrats, which would go against the historical odds of uh, majorities turning into minorities during those midterm elections. But overall, a great bill, I think. Um, I think it covers a lot of ground. I hope it doesn't get amended as much. I'll keep you up to date. Um, My Instagram is chf underscore podcast. You can follow me there. I have the link in the bio for Spotify. And I will see you next Wednesday.